Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanksgiving for gathering us here this night. We ask you, uh, especially prayers for our second graders that are receiving reconciliation. We ask you, Lord, just to be with them at this time. We give praise and thanksgiving, Lord Jesus Christ, for the scriptures and the importance of the scriptures in the life of us as Catholics and the church today. And as we continue to understand more about the Old and New Testament, we ask you just to inspire our hearts and our minds to, to know you through the sacred scriptures. We offer this up to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Mary Magdalene, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we talked about kind of an introduction to divine revelation. Um, we talked about sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Tonight we're going to focus on the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, and then kind of how they correspond and work together. Um, and again, I, this, I love this stuff. It's, it's, I, I woke up this morning, again, excited, like I did yesterday morning, uh, thinking about teaching all of this again to all of you. Okay, so the, the books of salvation history are really what we see in the, uh, the Old Testament. Uh, St. Augustine says that the old is revealed in the new, and the new is concealed in the old. So what we see in the old, we re it's revealed to us again in the new, and then so much of what we see in the New Testament, we get from the Old Testament. The first five books of the, of the Old Testament are known as the Pentateuch. Uh, penta, in Greek, is five. We believe... And so do the Jews that Moses is the traditional author of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and that's something that the church has taught for essentially 2,000 years. Now, there's a theory out there that, um, that, was, that was developed in the 1800s during the time, uh, the late, the late 18, really the late 1800s, by a gentleman by the name of Julius Wellhausen, who was a German. Uh, who kind of had anti-Semitic views, and usually when you have anti-Semitic views, you have, usually you're anti-Catholic as well. But he came up with this theory, and this is strictly what it is, that there were, that Moses didn't write the scriptures, that four sources actually wrote the scriptures, or four different sources, and they're known as the, it's known as the J-E-P-D, and it's the Yahwist, uh, the Eloist, the Priestly, and the Deuteronomist. And these sources, according to Wellhausen, he believed that they were the sources that, that whoever wrote the book of Moses, which are the book of uh, the, the first five books of the, the, um, the first five books of the Old Testament, whoever wrote them used these sources. The problem is we don't have these sources. We just don't have them. We don't, no, we never had them. It's a theory that Wellhausen came up with. Uh, what we have is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what we have. We don't have any of these other sources. There's, a, there's also another theory about the Q source, uh, which we see in the New Testament, where Matthew and Mark 
might have used this Q source. Same problem. We don't have the Q source. What we have are the four Gospels. So what I'm going to do is kind of go through the four sections of the, uh, the, the four sections of the Old Testament with you tonight, uh, as well as the New Testament. But I'm going to focus kind of, I'm going to pay our attention, at least for the, for the Old Testament, on the Pentateuch. So Genesis is the introduction to the creation of the world and the creation of man. It's the beginning of the family tree of man. But it's not a scientific explanation of how the world was created. The church isn't concerned with how the world was created, but why the world was created. So the seven days of creation, like I said last week, aren't seven calendar days. Um, it's not a scientific explanation, and that's something that we have to keep in mind. We also see Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Seth, Noah, and the flood. Uh, and then you also have Abram to Abraham, one of the great figures of great faith in the Old Testament is Abraham. So his name gets changed from Abram to Abraham, and Abraham means a father of a multitude. Um, so because he would, be, he, would be the, he would be where it all starts for uh, the three major religions of today of, of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So he, he descends, all of those religions descend from, from Abraham. Uh, the sacrifice of Isaac is very important, I'll talk more about that in a little bit. And that's actually that image up there, uh, that painting, is of the sacrifice of Isaac. You have Isaac, uh, Isaac and his son Jacob, uh, and then what becomes the 12 sons. Jacob has 12 sons, and then eventually Jacob becomes Israel. So we hear about the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the 12 tribes of Israel were also the 12 sons of Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Um, God changes a lot of people's names in the scriptures. And because like Abram to Abraham, Sarah to Sarai, the New Testament we see, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul, different because your name wasn't just your identification. It was kind of your, it was your mission. So like a father of a multitude, that was Abraham's mission. Uh, all those different names mean something uh, Israel is like uh, he, who, he who fights but sustains. So Jacob fought with an angel of God and was able to sustain and continue to fight with him. And then, and then eventually God renames Jacob to, to Israel. Genesis then ends with Joseph and all of the brothers. Uh, Joseph was one of the 12, was one of the 12 sons. Uh, and they're all in Egypt. And then eventually they become the, the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. So before I go on a little further, this whole table, this whole um, whiteboard here is a, uh, a lot of posters that I used in my classroom. This is the complete Bible timeline chart uh, that's associated with the Bible timeline done by Jeff Cavins through Ascension. Uh, and so we're going to, so the, it starts with the early world and it goes to the patriarchs, Egypt, all through the desert, conquest and the judges, and I'll kind of go through this as, as I continue with this presentation. So we're right about here. We're going to start with Egypt, and we're, so we're ending, we're, gonna, we're going into Egypt as the, the sons and uh, Israel go into Egypt. Uh, this is also the prophecies of uh, fulfilled by Jesus. These are the kings and prophets, which I'll talk about in a little bit. 
and then this is just the books of the Bible. So if you want to come up afterwards, take a picture of those, uh, you're, you're free to do that. The book of Exodus means going out uh, in Greek. Moses is essentially the whole book of Exodus focuses on Moses. You have Moses' birth, placed in the Nile, saved by Pharaoh's daughter, flees into the desert, the burning bush, back to free the Israelites. This is where we have let my people go. Okay, that's the whole uh, where, where God tells that to Moses and Moses then goes to Pharaoh. Uh, the ten plagues, uh, which they ends with the death of the firstborn, the Passover, the first Passover meal, and then they leave Egypt very quickly. They cross the Red Sea. They establish a covenant with God. Uh, and then you get the golden calf and the Ten Commandments. And then eventually the Levites become the priests. If you've ever seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, okay, that's kind of the book of Exodus. Um, and then uh, there are, uh, like, the, the, so the Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments, the original one with Charlton Heston, okay? So those kind of give you the story of Exodus. A lot of the things I talked about here we see in those movies. Two pretty good movies. There's a recent movie that was Christian Bale played Moses, I think, of Gods, of gods and Men. If you've never seen it, don't waste your time. You'll never get the three, years, the three hours of your life back again, okay? There, it's brutal. The plagues are the best part of it. One of the dads said last night, sitting at that table right there, said there's not one element of redeeming quality in that movie. It's all bad. Uh, the, the kid who plays God is this spoiled little brat. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. So if you've never seen it, don't see it. Because you'll, again, those three, those, you'll never get those three hours back. If you could find the plagues, like on YouTube, to watch the plagues, that's probably the best part. And then... Um, What's his face? Russell Crowe, he was in a movie about Noah. That's just equally as bad and probably even worse. That's, there's, you have rock people. Like, there's these people that are rock people. It's just like, dude, come up with something worse than rock. Like, people that were rock people that Noah spoke to. So it was really bad. Um, and those are really bad. So I would say if you really want to understand these stories, what I've been telling them is read the scriptures. Okay, that's, that's, that's your best bet. Okay. Leviticus. Leviticus is about the Levitical priests of Israel, um, where we get the... So, in, in Exodus, when they build the golden calf, what happens is they fall. So, they say to God, oh, we are your people, uh, you are our God, and we are your people. And then Moses goes up to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and they decide, oh, Moses left us high and dry, we're out here in the desert all by ourselves, we need to go back to Egypt, let's build a golden calf. The golden calf was essentially the god of wild partying that had a very risque element to it all, okay? There's kids in the room, so I'm not going to say what it actually was, but that's essentially what it was. So when the Egyptians partied with that, I think it was Apex, Apex or Apex is the god, uh, and it was a golden calf, they, that was what the party, that was what the whole element of worshiping that god was about, and that's what the Israelites do out in the desert. Now, Aaron's sons, who come from the tribe of Levi, from the original 12 tribes, they're faithful through the whole thing. And what they do is they eventually become the 12 the, the Levitical priests. Moses, because they were faithful during that rebellion that happens, uh, Moses says, we, I will make you now the priests because 
the Israelites themselves lost the ability to be priests. So I'm going to allow you to be the priests. And now from now on, you're the ones that will protect, the guard, protect and guard eventually the temple, which would be centuries later, but the Ark of the Covenant. You guys have ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites built. They were taking the battle with them. That's what the Levitical priests would protect in the tent that they would, when they traveled around the desert. So Leviticus is about the Levitical priests of Israel. It's a book of laws. It's kind of the foreshadowing of our canon law in the Catholic Church. And what it really focuses on is detailed worship life is made very clear because the Israelites could not be trusted to worship God properly. So it gives very detailed laws about worshiping God. Um, because when the, when the Israelites are left on their own, they do dumb things. They build a golden calf, okay? They do these silly things. So Leviticus is really all about that. The book of Numbers, the title of the book, has to do with the census of all the religious tribes of Israel. So they did a census at the time from so all those 12 tribes that came out of Egypt. The book of Numbers is about that census. It's also about the story of their 40 years in the desert and their constant rebellion against the authority of God and his prophet Moses. Numbers, I found that meme up there where it says arriving in 40, you know, Moses has a cell phone in that picture. So it says arriving in 40 years, that can't be right. So, um, so they traveled the desert for 40 years. Why 40 years? Well, because it was their punishment for building the golden calf. Now, People say, well, you know, they constantly rebelled. Yeah, they were constantly rebelling. The hard thing, when I first read the book of Numbers in grad school 11 years ago, I almost was like, what? They did what? You read the book of Numbers, you know they built the golden calf in Exodus. For 40 years, that generation is kind of being weeded out, and they're dying off as they're traveling the desert. The generation of those people that build the golden calf at the, in the book of Numbers, guess what they do? They build another golden calf. Forty years later in, at Bel Peor. So they just didn't get it. The, gen, the generation of those, the, the kids of those parents, they end up building another golden calf. And, there's an, and then there's more rebellion. And there's more complaining against Moses. So we see that all in the book of Numbers. And then we have the book of Deuteronomy, which is known as the second law in Greek. It's the second proclamation of the law, and the Ten Commandments are repeated. So we have this Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, but we also have the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. It also gives new laws, specifically how the Israelites will live in the promised land. It's the heart of the book is really a constitution, kind of the new constitution for the state of Israel. And it's also a prophetic roadmap of what's to come. Now, what's to come? So here we are on this map. The desert wanderings. All the, I mean, this whole, this whole thing, this Bible timeline, I was explaining to someone after the first class tonight. This Bible timeline is part of a series done by Jeff Cavins, which is about 25 or 30 weeks long, and it's two hours each week. So it's like, it's like 50, 50 to 60 hours going through all of this. And he essentially goes through the scriptures. You read all the, you read all the prophets. It's amazing. It's, like, it's almost like an undergrad biblical course. 
Um, so, so here we see them. Here's the wanderings in the desert right here. That's kind of the book of Numbers. Um, Deuteronomy is prophetic because Moses sees how rebellious they are. He sees them, you know, there's two gold, they rebel with two golden calves. Uh, they can't focus on detailed worship. Leviticus, he's constantly writing new laws into the, into the book of laws. So you have the original Ten Commandments, and then there's like 236 added laws that Moses has to add because the Israelites can't do the right thing. And there's a ton of them because they get associated with these cultures that are in the desert with them, and then they do something silly, and he's got to write another law. So, um, so Deuteronomy is really this prophetic roadmap because he says at the end of Deuteronomy, if you continue to mess up, if you continue to rebel against God, what's going to happen eventually is you're going to be sent into exile. You're going to be punished in exile, which eventually happens centuries later. We see it happening here centuries later after David unites the kingdom. The kingdom eventually splits in the two, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But it, it happens. Exactly what Moses said would happen happens because the, the Israelites continue to rebel against God. When you read it, you're like, how can they do this? They've got the presence of God in their midst. Then we turn it on ourselves. We have the Holy Eucharist in our midst. Jesus present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and we continue to be unfaithful to God. We continue to focus on false gods. We continue to be unfaithful. So we have a little mercy and compassion for the Israelites, but then you also get frustrated with them because they just continue to not get it. Um, and they get caught up in these, these false religions. The other three sections of the, the Old Testament are the historical books, which are the history of the Israelites, beginning with the arrival in Cana, through the end of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and on to the restoration of Jerusalem, which then we see King David. So there's these books that are written specifically as history, historical books of, of the people. The wisdom books, they're poetic religious hymns, stories, and wise advice, uh, and then assists us in how we live our lives today. So this is the book of Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Wisdom, Ecclesiastes. These are these different wisdom books that exist. And then the last thing is the prophetic books. It's the writings of the prophets, God's messengers to keep the kings in check. That's the whole, that's one of the big jobs for the prophets. They were to keep the kings in check. And the prophets also spoke about the coming of the Messiah. Now, to go back to here, this poster right here, okay, this, so David unites the kingdom in the purple, it's this, and again, all these colors mean something. So purple is a color of royalty. Usually when you, if you ever watch old movies, royalty, people, or you ever see stuff in history books, the, the royal, royalty, they're usually in purple because purple was considered a color of royalty. So, so what you've got is David unites the kingdom. He unites it in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not an Israelite city. He conquers Jerusalem, makes it his capital because it's right in the middle of the northern tribes and the southern tribes, just like Washington, D.C. is in the middle of the 13 colonies. So you have easy access as your capital to go from the north to the south. 
And then you have these different, so David unites the kingdom, and then eventually Solomon, who starts to mess up, mess it all up, and Solomon is David's son. Solomon starts off great at the beginning of his life, but ends up a mess at the end of his life. At the end of his life, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine is like a mistress, is a mistress essentially. And what all of these women and all of these people do that, that follow with these queens and these wives that Solomon marries is they, they, come into the, they come into Israel and they bring all their false gods with them. They bring all their, their statues and all their false idols. And they set them up in the temple. And what happens is the people start worshiping these false gods. And what do you know? They start worshiping them more than they're worshiping God, you know, God the Father, God, the one true God. So eventually the kingdom splits, and that's what you have right here. It splits into the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. So, you, so here's a big kind of detailed. This is a map of a, or a poster of it. You have Saul and then David and then Solomon, and then it splits. And then in the middle here, you have the prophets that are sent to the kings to keep them in check and also to bring the people back. The northern kingdom, all the kings are evil. They're all bad dudes. And their wives are just as bad. Uh, the one that are probably the most famous that people know is King Ahab. Okay? Everyone knows Ahab, but not from Moby Dick. Okay? So, but his wife Jezebel, okay, who is a witch of biblical proportions. All right? Just nasty. My mom said when they were, when she was younger, when you wanted to call someone, like a woman, a nasty name, you'd, you'd use that term, like that she's a Jezebel. That's essentially, they're all bad kings and bad queens. The southern kingdom, a little bit better, but not much better. There's at least some good kings in the kings uh, of the southern kingdom of, of right here. So, um, so that's, so, the, so the, really the prophets were there to keep the kings in check and then to also um, keep the kings in check, but also to call the people back to God. And they even went into, if you, if you look here, when you come up here, they even go into the, ex, some of the prophets even go into the exile with them as well. So as the people are kind of like complaining in exile in a foreign land, the prophets are like, man, we could be in the promised land living it up, but you're here in the desert because you screwed it up, because it's, you just couldn't follow God. You couldn't, you couldn't follow the, the one true God. So the prophets, again, continuing, always trying to call the people back. Okay, I gotta say something. If you're on a cell phone, can you put it down, please? It is incredibly rude that you're on that phone while I'm up here talking. It's not easy to come up here and speak to this large group. We put work into these talks, and I got people on your cell phone. You haven't even looked at me once the whole time. So it's just disrespectful. So if you can put it down and listen, that would be great. And then let me actually get this thing started too. Okay, so the old points to the new. Let's talk about the New Testament a little bit. Without the New Testament, the Old Testament seems to be a story after story of tragic events and promises that are unfulfilled. The Old Testament points to the new, for all that we see in the old is truly pointing to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament allows us to see Jesus before we know of Jesus as a historical person. In the Catechism, 
paragraph 1964 states, the old law is the preparation of the gospel. So, so much of what we start to see in the Old Testament, so many of the persons, the places, the events in the Old Testament, we start to see fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Old Testament is more than just the history of Israel, but again, it points to the new. Since God can view history at once, and God sees and creates all history as a unity. Unlike God, or unlike us, God does not view history as different points of time, but as one entire piece. So we see history historically through like stages of time, where God looks at it kind of from the top, like this. He looks, you know, kind of at this, this just one large piece of history. As Christians, we see many things in the Old Testament that look towards the New Testament. And I always talk about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac as it points to God's sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, the other thing that's interesting is not only do we see this event with Isaac, this, the sacrifice of Isaac pointing to Christ, but we also see the sacraments of the church, the seven sacraments. We see so much of that, so much of the seven sacraments in the Old Testament. We did a study here years ago called um, The Bible and the Sacraments, where I broke down, and it's a, it's a Scott Hahn study, where we broke down all seven sacraments, and where do we see them? Where does Christ talk about them? But then where do they come from in the Old Testament? So, like, let's just take, for example, tonight, reconciliation. So we got the second graders doing their first reconciliation, okay? Where's that, where, someone will say, well, where's that? Where's reconciliation in the Old Testament? The reconciliation in the Old Testament is the Day of Atonement that the Jews would celebrate each year. Each year, the Jews would bring all of their sins to God, and the high priest would then bring those sins, and I don't know if they wrote, I think they wrote them down, or I, I don't know the, the actual specifics on how it was done, but they might have written them down, and then the high priest would bring those to God and then burn those, or if, if they were written down. But there was a way that the high priest would represent the sins of the people for the year, and they would ask God for forgiveness during that year, and then they would offer up penance, or they'd offer up sacrifice, like they'd offer up like a bull for sacrifice, or the people themselves would have to do it, and also the high priest might have to do it as well. And I don't know the specific uh, details of it all, and I, I probably should, but I don't, uh, I, I don't right now. But it's, that's, that's the Day of Atonement. And the Jews, there's, the Jews still celebrate that today. They still celebrate the Day of Atonement, asking and seeking reconciliation with God. That is really the foreshadowing of the sacrament of reconciliation in the Old Testament. And you see this with all of the seven sacraments as well. With Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac carried wood up a mountain for the sacrifice. Jesus carries the wood of the cross up a mountain for his sacrifice. Isaac is the only son of God. Jesus is the only, or Isaac is the only son of Abraham. Jesus is the only son of God. Um, Isaac willfully allows his father to tie him to the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus crawls onto that cross willfully and allows himself to be crucified. So we see these events that point back and forth with Isaac and Jesus. Now this happens with a lot of the figures of the Old Testament also pointing to our Lord. 
So we must learn that the Old Testament, what the Old Testament is saying to the original readers and how we can view it and how it relates to Jesus Christ. So again, we have to look at what was it being said to the original readers and the people that the Old Testament was presented to, but then also how does it relate for us as Christians to Jesus Christ? Because again, the whole Old Testament is leading us into the New Testament. This is not an accident here among the analogies since God is the primary author of the scriptures. When something in history points forward to something else in the future, we call the earlier thing a type of the latter thing. So, for example, we say that Isaac was a type of Christ. Okay, we could say this about Moses. We could say this about David or about Solomon. You could say it about Melchizedek, who's another figure in Genesis. I didn't specifically talk about uh, Melchizedek, but there's another figure as well. The study of types in the Old Testament is called typology. Typology is one of the most important tools for studying the Old Testament. Typology is the persons, places, and events in the Old Testament that prefigure Jesus Christ and are fulfilled by him in the New Testament. So we also see this with the Blessed Mother as well. So there's different persons in the Old Testament that prefigure Christ. There's different events like the sacrifice of Isaac. And there's also places within the Old Testament that also foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ. The one thing with Mary, where we see this with the Blessed Mother, is so many of the very strong women in the Old Testament. So you think of Bathsheba, Ruth, Deborah, Queen Esther. Um, I mean, there's some right there. Deborah, uh, I think I said Deborah. Deborah, these certain women, they all represent our Blessed Mother in a different way. Our, our, our Lady fulfills a lot of these strong, independent women that we see from the Old Testament that are just, I mean, Queen Esther cuts off somebody's head, like a king's head. I mean, she's just, she's just awesome, okay? And, but now Mary doesn't do that, but she, do, now she, doesn't visit, she doesn't visibly cut off like a king's head, but what she does is she fights against Satan with our Lord. So the head of Satan, they kind of like decapitate Satan's head in a sense by stepping on Satan's head, you know, and they, they take on Satan together. Uh, we also see this with the Blessed Mother with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is what the Israelites carried in the battle. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is, okay? Um, it was a gold, a gold box, essentially, that they placed the Ten Commandments in. They placed the manna from the desert, which was the bread that came from heaven that fed the Israelites during the 40 years in the desert. And they took Mo, uh, Aaron's staff, which was the symbol of the high priest, and they put that in the ark as well when Aaron died. And they would carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. We see Mary as the Ark of the Covenant because she's immaculate like that golden box was immaculate. Like gold, the, the idea of gold is an immaculate metal. Um, what was contained in the Blessed Mother was Jesus Christ, who is the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word incarnate. So he's the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. He is the bread that comes from that, that come down from heaven. Okay, he's, the, he's the bread of life. And he's the high priest, which, again, the symbol of the staff represented the high priest. So, so Mary becomes the new Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so again, this is something that helps us understand a lot of the things that are in the, in the Old Testament. 
Now, the New Testament is organized just like the Old Testament. So the four sections of the Old Testament are the law, history, wisdom, and also prophecy. With the law in the Gospels, in the Old Testament, the five books of Moses gives us the old law and the story of the founding of Israel. In the same way, the four Gospels gives us the new law and the story of the founding of of the church, the new Israel. So just like the Pentateuch gives us the law, the Gospels give us the new law. The new law is really the Beatitudes that we see that Jesus gives to us in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. So as Moses, so we see kind of a connection between Moses and Jesus with the giving of the law. When Moses would teach the people and would present at the giving of the law, what Moses would do is that he would sit and then present and then teach. We see Jesus going up to a mountain, just like Moses went up to a mountain, and Jesus gets to the top of the mountain and he sits to teach the people about the new law, um, which sitting down and teaching for many years was kind of the traditional way you would teach. If you've ever been to one of our ordinations with, with Bishop Olmsted, during the ordination, during his homily, he doesn't stand at the ambo like he usually does at a mass, and he doesn't walk around in the sanctuary, okay? What he does is they give him a chair in the, on, in the sanctuary, at the top of the sanctuary, and he sits down. And he teaches us at the ordination masses. Because as a bishop, his primary role is to teach. And that's where we get the term that's related to the Holy Father called ex cathedra, which means from the chair. So that understanding that when Peter, or the Pope that sits in the chair of St. Peter, teaches, he's teaching from the chair. Which goes back all the way to the time of Moses, when Moses would then teach the people. The judges, when the judges would, would, um, would uh, settle disputes that happened in the tribes, they would do the same thing. They'd sit, just kind of like a modern-day judge sits and settles disputes. So you get this idea of the, the law being given in the four Gospels where Christ is giving us the new law and fulfilling the old law of Moses. You have history, the Acts of the Apostles, just as the Old Testament beginning in Joshua gives us the history of Israel from the death of Moses. So the Acts of the Apostles gives us the history of the early church from the ascension of Jesus Christ. We have the the wisdom, wisdom books or the epistles, the letters, letters written by the apostles, mostly by St. Paul, which we'll talk about shortly. And uh, and the, the letters are there to tell us how to live as Christians. And then prophecy, the revelation to John. John brings us the word of the Lord in symbols and images recalling those used in the Old Testament prophecy. Book of Revelation, I'm going to talk about it right at the end of this presentation. It's the most misinterpreted book in all of the Bible. People misinterpret it constantly. Continuing with the new law, so the evangelists had a right, the four evangelists, the four gospel writers, had a right to different audiences, so their gospels have different details to them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means seen together. So all three of those gospels have a very similar, they all look very similar. John actually fills in the holes and kind of completes the other, I shouldn't say fills in the holes, he completes the other three gospels. 
John's gospel is very different, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Now, last week, I talked about certain um, criteria that the church used to pick the gospels that went into our canon, into our Bible. And these are the three points of criteria. The first one is apostolic origin. The gospels, the church said, was written in the first century based on eyewitness accounts, and the evangelists were either apostles or people that had contact with them. So that's one of the, one of the, one of the, the uh, criteria. The second one is that they were accepted in a widespread audience. All the gospels were circulated and accepted in the church. And then the last is the conformity to the rule of faith. Reflected the traditional faith of the early church and did not deviate from the teachings of Jesus Christ. So our four gospels, we look at them, they are all eyewitness accounts. They were all widespread acceptance. and They all conformed to what the early church was teaching people as well as what Jesus Christ had presented in, in, in divine revelation. Or what, what Christ had, I mean, the Gospels are divine revelation, but what Jesus presented during his three-year mission. So those are the things that give us that criteria of the Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels, they're bizarro. They are all over the place, and they're, they're, their teachings are very different than that of Christ. So the question that usually comes up is, do the Gospels contradict each other? Are they in error? No, they're not in error, so these are the things that we have to remember. We're getting a translation of Jesus' words. Jesus said and did similar things on more than one occasion. History is complex, and authors take different viewpoints. The evangelists had an obligation to tell a readable story. So they were selective in what they gave us. When they don't tell us something happens, they just don't do it. They are not denying it. They just didn't write about it. They were thematic. They arranged the material in a theme-like way. They paraphrased. Long sermons were often shortened to shorter sermons or main points, and then they were simplified. Only the main people that were at the event were talked about. So again, we see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where people say, well, John says this, or Matthew says this, or, but do they contradict? No, this is the thing that we have to remember is they can't set, Jesus did so much over three years that you can't write about all of it, so they have to tell, kind of conduce, kind of make it uh, simplified and, and uh, easier for us to understand. All right, so let's focus on the Gospels. So the Gospel of Matthew, written by St. Matthew the Apostle, written after 70 A.D. and around the fall of Jerusalem. The Romans finally destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., and that was the fall of Jerusalem. The Wailing Wall that exists in, uh, in Jerusalem today is actually one of the old retention walls of the old temple. So the temple at the time of Christ, that's one of the retention walls. It was written to Jewish Christians, and I'll come back to that in a second. Written in the language of Aramaic, which is the language our Lord would have spoken with the apostles, and then translated into Konai Greek. The theme was that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews had been looking for, and he's now the new Moses, the new Solomon, and now he's the new David. So we see a lot of those Old Testament figures being presented in Matthew. We see that the messianic kingdom, the messianic kingdom has come. It's known as the teaching gospel because it has, it contains most uh, of Jesus' teachings, or like 
the majority of Jesus' teachings are in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's also known as the Kingdom of God Gospel because Jesus refers to the Kingdom of Gospel, the Kingdom of God, numerous times. I mean, it's one thing after another about the Kingdom of God is at hand, and it's all written in Matthew. Now, he writes to Jewish Christians. These are Jews that either were converting or had already converted. So what he's trying to show to the Jews is he's, he's trying to prove a point. It's 28 chapters in length. He's like, look, Jesus that you had been looking for, the Messiah that you had been looking for, he came. He was here in the flesh, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the flesh, you know, was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the new Moses. He's the new Solomon. He's the new David. He's the new Melchizedek. All these figures that you know from the Old Testament or from your scriptures, he fulfills it all. So that's exactly why Matthew is trying to prove that point. Now, it's in relation to Mark, which is different because Mark is a lot shorter. The author is John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas and a translator for Peter. Barnabas was one of the companions of St. Paul. It's written in the late 60s A.D., while Peter was in Rome. The audience is Roman Christians or, or Gentiles that were living in Rome under Nero, and I'll come back to that as well. The language is more than likely Greek. The theme is vivid and dynamic, for, or Jesus is vivid and dynamic, focuses on Jesus as the healer and what his, and what his actions are, and the passion story is, has great detail toward, uh, in it as well. And I'll explain that too. And, we, and Mark uses the term son of God quite a bit when speaking about Jesus, which also connects us to his divine sonship, uh, which means we become the heirs with our Lord. And there's, I, mean, I, could, I could spend a whole half hour explaining all of that to you. Um, now, he writes to Roman Christians. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. Why? Because the Roman Christians were already Christians. They didn't need to be proven anything. They were already believed in Jesus Christ. They already accepted it all. They're like, yeah, we get it. Okay? So that's why his, his gospel is super short. The passion is detailed because the Roman Christians under Nero were suffering. Roman Nero, if you know anything about Emperor Nero, he's a bad dude. Okay? A narcissist. He, he burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He hated the Christians. He was a mess, okay? He's kind of like King Henry VIII, but not as intelligent. Henry VIII was actually smart. Nero was kind of a mess. So, so Nero is just a lunatic, and the Roman Christians are suffering under him. And what Mark is saying is if you're going to follow Jesus Christ and, go and, 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 deal with the, and deal with Nero, you're going to go through the same type of passion that uh, our Lord went through because Nero killed lots of Christians. So, again, Matthew's, super, Matthew's long because he's got a point to prove. Mark is short because he's already writing to people who already believe. Kind of like us. It's like writing to a group of us. We already believe in Jesus Christ. You already know that he's the Messiah. There's no reason to prove anything. The Gospel of Luke, St. Luke is a companion of St. Paul and a Gentile. The early, Christian, the early church fathers uh, tell us this. The uh, Gospel of Luke was written probably somewhere in the early 60s A.D., in the language of Greek. Now, the question came up, why Greek? Well, Greek was the language of the time. The Greek empire had such an influence on the world at the time that everybody spoke Greek, very similar to the English language today. If you do commerce across the world, many people know the English language. 
If you go, uh, remember the Olympics? Anytime you watch the Olympics, a lot of those athletes, they all know English because they either train over, they either train in the states, okay, from other countries, or they're training in parts of Europe, uh, and they all know English. So it's a way, it's the language kind of of the time. That's the same thing with Greek. Everybody kind of knew Greek or a form of Greek. Um, written to Gentile Christians. Again, Christians that were Gentiles, so similar to the Romans, but not in Rome. So maybe gent, maybe pagans uh, that weren't weren't obviously Jewish, but had converted. Maybe you know in the in like the the area of Greece, modern day Greece and Turkey, people that were pagans that were Gentile Christians. Now he addresses it to Theophilus. Theophilus, it's kind of an and uh, an either or or a kind of a both. It's like really like a both and. Theophilus could either be a person. Uh, a Roman aristocrat that paid St. Luke to write his story, or Theophilus means, the, the term Theophilus means lover of God. So he's either referring to all people that love God, or he's focusing on a person named Theophilus, or both. It could, be bo- it could actually be both. His theme is a universal message of salvation for all. So it's, salvation wasn't just for the Jews anymore. It was for all Gentiles because Jesus brings everybody to himself. And then the infancy narrative, it's amazing to think this, that St. Luke sat down with the Blessed Mother and wrote down the stories that we get in the infancy narratives. In the first early chapters of like chapters, uh, what is it, like chapters one and two of, of Luke, where we have all of those, what we call the infancy narratives of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is the, gospel, the John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We believe, our scholars believe that he was the youngest of all the apostles of the original 12 apostles, probably being around the age of 16, 17, or 18 years old. Um, his date, when he writes his Gospel, is somewhere around 90, 90 A.D., somewhere in the 90s, uh, but as late as 100 A.D., out of all the original 11, I, I, well, let me say it again. Out of the 11 faithful apostles, John is the only one not to die a death of a martyr. He was eventually exiled to the island of Patmos, which is off the, uh, it's off the coast of Turkey. But he's sent into exile, but he's never, he's never actually, he dies a natural death. He's never, he's never killed or martyred. So he's so by the time you know sixty years after the time after the time of Christ, he's probably in his in his late seventies. The language is Greek, but written with an Aramaic influence. He writes to both Jews and Jewish Christians, and it's got a very much a a evangel uh, a uh, evangel um, I can't say that. I've said this word three times tonight like evangelization uh, a very evangel evangelization type of theme. Um, the great imagery that we get from John is the I am statements from Jesus. Um, and the theme is actually the revelation of God as a family. So he's writing to, John kind of writes, I know I wrote Jewish, Jews and Jewish Christians. John kind of writes to everybody. I would even include Gentiles in there as well. The I am statements, I am the bread of life. I am, uh, the word, you know, I am the life, uh, all of the I am statements, I am the gatekeeper, 
No, no, I am the, no, that's from Ghostbusters. Uh, not, gate, not, not gatekeeper. I am the shepherd's gate. Or like, like, okay, like that's, okay, yeah. Remember, okay, I am the key master. Okay, remember Ghostbusters? Sorry, I just saw that with my niece and nephew recently, and a key master just popped in my head. Okay, so, so not the key master, but like I am the shepherd's gate. All of those I am statements, I am the bread of life, all of those all come from John. And then, uh, and then we know that Jesus went up to Jerusalem three times, and we know Jesus' mission was three years in length because of John. John talks about three Passover meals in his gospel. Jesus, uh, the, the synoptic gospels only talk about one, which is the third one. History of uh, Acts of the Apostles, again written by St. Luke. Now St. Luke writes Saint, his gospel and then Acts of the Apostles. Written somewhere around 63, 64, 5, uh, 63 to 65 A.D., the reliable history of the first 30 years of the early church from the ascension of Jesus to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Luke himself is often an eyewitness in Acts of the Apostles where he'll say, we were there or I was there. So you'll see when you read Acts of the Apostles, you see that with, with Luke talking about himself. Uh, chapters 1 through 14 of Acts of the Apostles is all about Peter, chapter, with, with Paul mixed in there a little bit, and then really chapters 15 through 28, all about Paul. And then Peter's, Peter's is in there a little bit as well. But they're really about, the first section is about Peter, the first part, uh, the second part is about Paul. I am about to teach a class for the Kino Institute at the Diocese of Phoenix, and I start with Acts of the Apostles. The first two classes are literally all Acts of the Apostles. It's a keynote class on Thursday mornings from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. It's three hours. We get like, I think I do two breaks, and it's just literally kind of explaining Acts of the Apostles. And then it's also all of Paul's letters, all the Catholic epistles, as well as the book of Revelation in five weeks. Yeah, we don't get through it all. It's, in, it's You could do a whole class, just you could do two classes on Paul, on just Paul's writings. Uh, like two 15-week classes where you're meeting you know, like a, think of a college, like college schedule, you could do that with all, all of those things that I teach in that one class. Um, wisdom is the epistles. Uh, as the apostles founded the church, uh, the churches, they wrote letters to them. St. Paul has the greatest number of letters to the churches to be founded. So St. Paul's an interesting character because he starts off Jewish by birth, a Roman citizen and a Pharisee, persecuted the early Christians. I mean, he was there when St. Stephen was martyred. He was probably one of the key elements in the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Has a conversion, though, after seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, and he's known as the apostle to the Gentiles because all the, everyone he spoke to, mostly 95% of the people that he went, all those, the, the, the three missionary journeys that Paul went on, the majority of the people that he spoke to were all Gentiles. He did speak to the Jews on occasion, but mostly Gentiles, so not all people that were not Jewish. Um, all the letters that were addressed um, to the different churches, issues that arose in the infant churches as they tried to live holy lives. So, you know, he finds Galatia and Thessalonica and Philippi and Ephesus, all these different churches, and he's starting to write the letters to these different cities like us, we are used to multiple parishes. Well, there in the early church, it was literally everybody of, like, 
Phoenix would come together and be under one church. And then we also have the Catholic epistles, which are addressed to the whole church. Now, St. Paul was uh, a Roman citizen. And the question that always comes up is, how was he a Roman citizen if he was a Jew? He was born into his Roman citizenship because his parents were once slaves and, or servants under Mark, really slaves. They were slaves under Mark Anthony. And when, you know, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, okay, if you've ever heard that story. When he dies, they're given their freedom. So when you were given your freedom, you were given usually the option for Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship gained, there were certain privileges of being a Roman citizen that you didn't have if you weren't a citizen. One of the privileges is when at the, Acts, at the end of Acts of the Apostles, he gets, back sent to, he gets sent back to Rome. And we know through uh, just the tradition of the church and the, and the history of the church that Paul eventually is martyred in Rome. He's killed by the Romans in Rome. Since he was a Roman citizen, he was, he was accused of the capital, the capital crime. Instead of being crucified, which was meant for criminals and non-Roman citizens, it was meant to humiliate you, they'd strip you naked, crucify, put you to that cross, and you could be there for days on that, crucifix, on that crucifix. Paul, as a Roman citizen, they took him outside the walls. So back in the, in the ancient world, all the cities had big walls around them to protect them from people trying to invade their, their, their countries or their cities. And they would take him outside the city, and they took Paul outside the city, and they cut off his head. He was beheaded. And now today, the basilica, one of the four major basilicas in Rome, St. Paul outside the walls, is on the place where St. Paul was martyred. Being a Roman citizen, it was a quicker death than being crucified. Our Lord was crucified. St. Peter was crucified actually upside down because he didn't, wasn't, didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. The, book of, uh, the, the last book of the entire Bible in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. It's written by St. John the Evangelist. So St. John, who wrote the Gospel of St. John, who also wrote a few letters that are part of the Catholic epistles, he wrote it in either 68 A.D. or 95 A.D. Those are the two dates that we believe he wrote it because they were both times of great persecution for the church. Written, again, obviously in Greek. Now, there's five points to the, the book of Revelation. The first is that the scenes are not chronological. Everybody tries to read Revelation chronologically from chapter 1 to the last chapter. Can't read it like that. Most of you in this room are either in and around my age, so you'll remember this because I remember this. There used to be this thing on TV, and now it's still on television, but there's garbage on it now. There used to be this thing called MTV, okay, music television, where there were videos, okay, where you actually would turn it on, and there was Run DMC, or like, remember the like Rat, like Rat, or Metallica. Okay, Rat, man, where do I pull that one from, Okay. All right? I still listen to Metallica at the gym, but, that's, but you know, these old videos. So my whole point of this is that those old videos, the words of, that they were singing usually didn't correspond with the images that you were seeing. Some of them did, but a lot of the videos, you had these different images popping in and out, okay? That's the book of Revelation. They're not chronological. They're just different images that John sees. 
So John's on the island of Patmos, exiled, and he sees these visions. He has these visions, and however he sees them, he sees these visions, and he starts to write them down. And that's the book of Revelation. So the scenes are not chronological. Think, think, when you think of MTV, think of the book of Revelation, okay? It's also a liturgical document, which it has, a lot of it has to do with the Catholic Mass. A lot of what's written in Revelation focuses on the liturgy. It uses Old Testament imagery to teach theological truth. It gives us a two-level description of the world in Jerusalem, so like the new Jerusalem in heaven and the Jerusalem here on earth. And then a lot of the covenant themes that we see in the Old Testament, which we didn't really talk about the covenants in the Old Testament, but there are seven or really six covenants in the Old Testament that God establishes with Adam, Noah, Abraham, um, David, Moses, and these different figures. Some of those themes from those covenants are also in the book of Revelation as well. So people think all that stuff's going to happen at the end of the time. All that's all that, all that stuff's going to be at the end of the world. Well, no, a lot of the stuff that already happened, in Re a lot of the stuff that's in Revelation has kind of already happened historically. It's apocalyptic in a sense that it talks, it gives us imagery of end times, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the way the world's going to go down that's in book of Revelation. Again, it gets misinterpreted by Catholics and non-Catholics alike. 